0: Great, yeah. I I feel like we really entered in this morning. And um, if heaven joined us and we joined heaven, then it was uh, definitely a (laughs) bazing. Uh, Yeah, I appreciate all of you for But there was something that happened at this wedding. Um, Things came together. We, it was, it was an event, and it was full of um, testimony. And um, if you weren't here, I just was overwhelmed by the from the beginning of the wedding. Uh, David, <clears throat> Stephanie's husband now, <clears throat> and his mother, he walked his mother in. And um, David had had cancer um, six years ago, seven, somewhere between six and eight years ago when it started. And um, as you can imagine, it just devastated um, their family. And um, by the time he came home, he was living in California with his wife at the time. By the time he came home, he was skin and bone, um, and um, at the same time his marriage was falling apart, so it was kind of a double package, you know, double barrel, bam. And uh, <clears throat> brain tumors are, that's a whole nother thing. I mean, you know, and so I don't know the details of what his restoration was like, and, and even the treatments, I, I'm just not clear about it. It was a very... Unique kind of tumor that is somewhat still there, but it's not growing not active. It's real different and um, They're not able to do surgery on it. It's a real strange thing Um, Cancer's demonic anyway, so why are why are we surprised when it acts strange and does weird things? Um, And that brought him back home and into his mother's care and his family's care (laughs) so You know how you love your children. You know the process and and um, uh, the feelings and the connection. And and then an adult child comes back and they're totally helpless. And you, it takes you right back through all that. You're. I mean, I'm a man, but I still can relate to the mother instinct of like reconnecting and nurturing and taking care of him. And they were. Both his mother and father were so glad to have him back, and so they went into this process of caring for him and bringing him back into their home and um, nurturing back to health, and the brothers and sisters and everyone else was involved. And so when they they hugged, and when she hugged him, I, I, I just felt what she was letting go of. I mean, we were always releasing people at weddings, and I really encouraged that part of it. It's so important to give this man and to give this woman an every relationship has to give in to that because it changes every relationship a marriage does you can know a person for a long time you can date you can do whatever the marriage is a it's a clear defining moment that things change at that point it challenge it can challenge some relationships it stretches things it's you know it just has an effect and we give and and so that immediately, and then all the things that followed us, the wedding party came through. I'm standing in front, just overwhelmed by all these fulfilled promises, Brant walks up with grace, and I'm just like, by God's grace, they're back with us relationally. And um, everywhere I looked in the room, there was just stories that were just coming alive for me and what God's done. Like, it was all through this 200 people sitting here. And... um, In hope against hope, we... We try to hang on to promises the Lord makes, and we're, we're beyond ourselves to understand how it can possibly happen, and those are the best stories, thank you. <clears throat> and we, we try to believe, and we try to hang on to things, and we, we, <laughs> we know we've, we've run out of whatever. And we stand sometimes so naked in our faith, because we just don't have much left, but, we're, but we refuse to curse God. We've refused to just we just stand there quietly, like, at least that's what I experience sometimes. I don't know how to believe beyond what I have. I don't know what to do or change. and you're so helpless. But God is just so able. That doesn't affect him. As long as we just stay in that place, I believe with this wee little bit that I have, I hang, I won't curse you, I won't change, I won't give up. I'll just stand here and look like an absolute fool, forever believing that. And then Jason, Micaiah, rolling this wagon in and... uh, With Mackenzie sitting in it, that's a whole other thing, an impact that was adorable, and yet it was impacting me, and I've never done a wedding where the whole room became electrified and engaged in everything, like it just came alive. And when those the children came through, I could hear a sound among the people, like an uh, awe, like it was just so adorable. And uh, the Lord uses things like that, just opened up our heart, and just everybody, just like there was, I never saw that, exp- you know. You could hear a sound of acknowledgement and, you know. And the Lord uses, he has, there are symbols and signs and pictures he gives us that are like a drop of, you know, life. Joy, beauty, this is the real beauty, you know. And and it just went, went through. I'm like, I was uh, emotionally like, I've been so like flatlined for so long and all of a sudden my things have come back alive to me. It's, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's good to be alive. It's embarrassing sometimes, but here we are. <laughs> I'd gotten a revelation a while back about when we do a wedding, I forget the the details of what I say, but I I engage the whole, everybody's there, every guest, every witness, every, every person. We today are going to proclaim, we're going to call this marriage into existence. It doesn't matter what the stupid government gives us, a license. All of that is just stuff. But we need to get back to realizing in relationally and in community, we have this power to bring a, what is a marriage. The government can't create a marriage. And it's really foolish that they even give us a permission to have one. Like that came out of something really not good. And that we declare, we proclaim, we declare in a body of people coming together and, and giving a blessing and giving a proclamation and giving a, a whatever. And oh my gosh, like we did that, like, and and it just it was just amazing through, and and uh, Stephanie and, and and David and 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 it, they've had a rough road relationally and working things out, and and uh, uh, come, it's just it's a it's a cataclysmic thing when you especially when you're in at that age. It's you know it's bad enough when you're young and you come together, but when you're older and established in things and you bring this, like, wow, it's still challenging. And um, but the Lord is faithful, and and it just it was just so was just so amazing. And uh, everyone that came was really impacted. And they would come and tell me, tell Karen, tell all of us, like, oh, my gosh, that wedding. All I could do was say, I know. Like, I didn't feel like I did it. Like, just was a part of it, you know. It was just a hand among a body. I was just a voice. I was just whatever. But uh, all the things that came into being, like, something's different, something switched, something changed, and I want to leave this stuff up like I I declared it already before. I said, you know, often when we have these neat weddings, there's a transfer over into the the church service of what that anointing that was in that that marriage, and I'd experienced that all through the years in the tent and different weddings we've had as the girls decorate and do different things, and women decorate, and and it and there's, there's a, a residue of it, it, le- it leaves, it stays, and sometimes those things in the tent we could play house, and uh, there were different elements, and someone reminded me there was tooling that stayed up in the tent from one or two of the weddings that it kind of started to grow, and there were things, and they we left them like, oh, we like that, we just left it, you know, and so it was, it was fun, and so I want to leave this at least till uh, Christmas, and um, somehow we'll work around the front stuff and do whatever, but and then I began to think about Christmas. Then I looked at my calendar. And I'm like, oh my gosh, Christmas is on Sunday this year. And um, so here's what I'm proposing. Um, unless I run into a roadblock, I want to have a Christmas Eve service at 5 on Saturday evening that just goes from 5 to 6.30 maybe. It won't be a full, full service, but it will, will come together at 5 on that Saturday evening, have our regular church service and a Christmas Eve service mixed together and uh, enjoy that, come to an end and then we can leave and we have family things going on and uh, we'll be, we just can go there, enjoy that and we'll take Christmas morning off. So that's kind of the plan. That's what I'm, I'm thinking to do. And this will be here. And um, I'm believing for even our Christmas Eve service to be unique this year and special like so, um, which is what it was intended to be. Like this, yeah, celebrating Emmanuel, God with us. Well, that's a big deal for us because we desire the presence. We don't want to just have religious church. We want the Lord to visit us. Um, if he doesn't come to the party, it's just not the same, yeah? And um, so I feel like something shifted. I can't explain it, and... um things are different. This revelation, taking this up a notch of the communion table where Jesus yeah, is in the center. And um, you know how we've made it to this point? Because the Lord would give us prophetic words and we would act on them. We would do acts of that prophetic word. word and no kidding! One day, just out here somewhere, before this was land, before the excavation happened, we jumped through hoops. You know that old saying, you know, jump through hoops. We literally had hoops, and we jumped through them. We put the cross in the back. We had to, you know, uh, bury the past Sunday. It was a prophetic thing that we did. It's still back there. You're still in place, and buried under there is God knows what. Like we dig a hole with a backhoe and had people give things, throw things in that. that were symbols of what they wanted to bury. It was a great thing, you know. Like would you know if I'd have come up with the idea, I'd be proud of it. I kind of did, but I it was inspired. Like it was just a neat thing to do. Like yeah, why wouldn't you? Made a cross out of some used four by fours and. Took my router and inscribed things and, uh, you know. A- and we would do things, and then we shot arrows. How ridiculous. But had somebody to actually shoot an arrow, we put banners on it, and we made declarations as we shot those arrows out across the field. What we did things. They were prophetic acts. So I want to just, we need to get back to that. It was crazy, and I'd watch people that are visiting like, wow, you guys are weird, you know. It's like, yeah, but we're happy. We're like, we would have a great time doing it. And uh, you see those things through the scriptures, and um, I I think I related this when we had some visitors that came uh, a month ago, maybe now it's been before we went to Colorado. Uh, Dave Render brought some friends, and and, uh, they had a ministry in Akron, and um, they were so hungry and talking to Phyllis and I and wanting to know our story and how we got here and how we got to the building and you start to remember. You're remembering these things, just like we're supposed to remember communion. We're remembering things like, yeah, how did we get here? And this was happened, and that happened, and we, and we got a word, and we believed something, and and we we realized that Spirit was saying there was going to be a building here, and I had no way to create one or make one, and so I brought some old, made three crosses again out of old lumber that I had, and put them on this hill with, and we started putting rocks that symbolized our burdens and whatever, and people come up, and know it was quite a rock pile as you can imagine after several years i'm like it was all i could do but i wanted to do an act and i was like in my youth there was such wisdom in that like you get a word it's this is what those altars were all about that they would build in the old Testament, they were to remember something happened in this place and i took some rocks and i built an altar and i went this is where it happened this is bethel you know this is the place where God visited me. This is the, this is the place where we crossed and we, there was a, we wanted to leave a testimony because the story is so important. And then remembering the story is so, so very important. And if we forget the story, we forget where we came from and we also forget where we're going. We get distracted and pulled aside But when we remember these things, we step back, we get our footing and go, yeah, again. And now I can, don't you always need to get a footing before you move forward? If you're going to jump across the ravine, you back up and you get a good footing and you take three steps and hope you make it to the other side. And and it's not any different in the spirit. And I love having things to do. It makes it more real where I can do something physically, it's not works, it's response to a word. And so, wow, wow, wow. So along with all those things, I want to introduce something to you today. Um, I've been deeply impacted. I began to read this book, Imagine Heaven, and it is uh, an excellent, this isn't a haphazard, this is an, an excellent, like, Professionally, excellently done documentation of um, NDEs, near-death experiences, and then NDERs are new near-death experiencers, like the persons that have had a near-death experience. And um, this man, John Burke, was so good about then relating that to scriptures. And you realize our Bible's full of experiences like this and descriptions of heaven. That This just woke me, it just impacted me, must be right thing, right time. And there are many, actually many books about this and booklets, someone, Rob was just telling me somebody had another booklet. Who, who had that? Tanya Ridgway was walking around with, did you, do you have it? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, I got to get a copy of that. Like, do you have a copy of it that you're not going to let go of, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I'll have to get that. Um, I don't talk about this and it's not good. And you begin to read these stories and you re- you begin to read the reality of people that leave their bodies. And it's not weird. It's 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 good. It's scripture, like it, it's scriptural, <clears throat> it's well documented. And when these men, some of them are professionals that have that like there was a, I um, I think it was a neurologist, I believe that's the right term for who he was. Doesn't matter, he's like a lot smarter than me, professional. And he studied the brain knew everything about the brain and there's one area of the brain if that goes flat you're you're dead it's where your consciousness is he studied this he knew He's, he knows okay and it was his opinion he wasn't a christian he believed when that part of your bread your brain goes dead go, is gone you be dead like you don't exist anymore your con- this was your conscious, this is your reality, and once that flatlines, you don't exist. That was his opinion, okay? Well documented, he studied, he knew these things. Who would argue, who could argue with him? Then he develops a very rare disease, it would just so happen, that affected that exact part of his brain, and guess who got to have a near-death experience, You can argue, what, what's the saying you can, you know, you, you keep, what argument do you have against a man's experience? Like when someone, is, yeah, but I, you know, I once was blind and now I see. And where can the argument go after that? Well, it wasn't real. All right, <laughs> but I see. You couldn't, it couldn't be, it's impossible. Yeah, but I couldn't see and now I can see. How could that? How I don't know. He prayed for me. He with a capital H prayed for me, spoke over me. I was blind. I can now see. That's all I know. I don't know anymore. And so once he had that experience, he begins to collect these documents, these uh, experiences and these people uh, that would have these. Psalms 139, listen to this and listen to it in, with new ears to realize the reality, this reality, and then this reality that's in Psalms 139, I've been using it in my, uh, my comfort text uh, for a while. Like this, especially this week, I just kept going at it because there's so, so much there. And, and you realize we read the words, but then to put real, people's experience with it, wow, it just really brings it right off the page. Psalms 139 in the Passion Translation, Lord, you know everything there is to know about me. You perceive every movement of my heart and soul, and you understand my every thought before it even enters my mind. You are so intimately aware of me, Lord. You read my heart like an open book, and you know all the words I'm about to speak before I even start a sentence. This is the reality of how well the Lord really knows you. Which is the testimony of person after person after person in this book. They experience this being known fully, completely, and seeing their life like because the Lord knows all of this. He really does. You've gone into my future to prepare the way, and in kindness you follow behind me to spare me from the harm of my past. With your hand of love upon my life, you impart a blessing to me. This is just too wonderful, deep, and incomprehensible. Your understanding of me brings me wonder and strength. Where could I go from your spirit? Where could I run and hide from your face? If I go to heaven, you're there. If I go down to the realm of the dead, you're there too. If I fly with wings into the shining dawn, you're there. That's exactly what these people experience. They fly, but they don't know how they're flying. They move, but they can't comprehend how it's happening. They're so alive, they can't believe they're dead. Wherever I go, your hand will guide me. Your strength will empower me. It's impossible to disappear from you or to ask the darkness to hide me. For your presence is everywhere, bringing light into my night. There is no such thing as darkness with you, which is what these people experience. Is it dark in heaven? No, never. He's the light. You couldn't look on him, they'll they'll testify, you couldn't look on him with your human eyes. It would burn your retinas out in a tenth of a second. That's how brilliant and bright you have to be in the spirit to even look on him. Wow. But that fits. There's no such thing as darkness with you. The night to you is as bright as the day, and there's no difference between the two. We, in our reality, we go... What you want to bet there's a difference but with the Lord and in the spirit and in his presence in heaven there is no difference let me whet your appetite and I won't have to ask you to read the book (laughs) you'll find it I began to read this I'd Phyllis like Rick you got to read this book she's way ahead of me always in reading and I'm like, yeah, I will. So we were going on this trip, and I'm like, I'm going to take this with me. And so sitting on the plane, I finally got, I, I began to read. And sitting in the airport when we went to Colorado. Um, this is a, about, this is, it begins, it's chapter 1. It begins with a man's experience. And um, I'll, I'll read, then I'll get to, I'll, I'll introduce it and skip some if I can. It was 1943 in Camp Barkley, Texas, George Ritchie had enlisted to fight the Nazis. In the middle of boot camp, he got word that the army would send him to med- medical school. His dream come true. The weather and training both took their toll and Ritchie got double pneumonia the week he was supposed to ship out to Richmond for school. The morning he'd planned to catch the train, he woke up at midnight in a sweat, heart pounding like a jackhammer with a 106-degree fever. During x-rays, he passed out. Where was I, Richie pondered, and how had I gotten there? So all of a sudden, this goes into his experience. I thought back, trying to remember the x-ray machine. That's right. They had taken me to x-ray department, and I must have fainted or something. The train, I'd miss the train. I'd jump out of bed in alarm looking for my clothes. I turned around, then froze. Someone was lying in that bed. I took a step closer. He was quite a young man with short brown hair, lying very still. But this was impossible. I myself had just gotten out of that bed. For a moment, I wrestled with the mystery of the man in my bed. It was too strange to think about, and anyway, I did not have time to figure that out. (laughs) Can you relate? The ward boy, maybe my clothes were in his room. I hurried out of the little room and looked around. A sergeant was coming along the corridor, carrying an instrument tray covered with a cloth. Probably he did not know anything, but I was so glad to find someone awake that I started toward him. Excuse me, Sergeant," I said, "You haven't seen the ward boy, for his, this unit, have you?" He didn't answer. Didn't even glance at me. He just kept coming, straight at me, not slowing down. "Look out!" I yelled. The sergeant walked past George without knocking him down or spilling the tray, but how? Richie didn't care. His mind was fixed on not missing the train to his train to Richmond medical School. Uh, couldn't wait. Determined to find some way to get to Richmond, even if he had missed the train, George headed down the hallway and out the door. Almost without knowing it, I found myself outside, racing swiftly along, traveling faster, in fact, than I had ever moved in my life. It was not cold as it had been earlier in the evening. Felt neither cold nor hot, actually. Looking down, I was astonished to see that the ground See, not the ground, but the tops of mesquite brush bushes beneath me. Already, Camp Barkley seemed to be far behind me as I sped over the dark, frozen desert. My mind kept telling me that what I was doing was impossible, and yet it was happening. A town flashed by beneath me, caution lights blinking at the intersections. This was ridiculous. A human being could not fly without an airplane. However, I was traveling too low for a plane. An extremely broad river was below me now. There was a long, high bridge, and on the far bank, the largest city I had come to yet. I wished I could go down there and find someone who could give me directions. I caught a flickering blue glow. It came from a neon sign over the door of a red-roof, one-story building with a Pabst Blue Ribbon beer sign propped up in the front window. Cafe, the jittering letters over the door read, and from the window's light streamed onto the pavement. Down the sidewalk and toward the all-night cafe, a man came briskly walking. At least, I thought. I could find out from him what town this was and in what direction I was heading. Even as the idea occurred to me as though thought and motion had become the same thing, I found myself down on the sidewalk. Can you tell me, please, I said, what city this is? He kept walking right on. Please, sir, I said, speaking loudly, louder, I'm a stranger here, and I'd appreciate it if it we We reached the cafe, and he turned, reaching for the door handle. Was the fellow deaf, I put out my left hand to tap his shoulder. There was nothing there. Disturbed that his hand had passed right through the man, George leaned up against a telephone pole wire to think. There for the first time, it dawned on him, he might possibly be dead. The sergeant who had not run into him, the man's body in his bed, He decided to try to get back to his body as soon as his mind was made up. He was leaving the city by the river and speeding even faster than before back this way he came. He got back to the base and began a frantic search for his body. Room to room throughout the army hospital. He had been unconscious, then put him in, my, in the room, <clears throat> unconscious when they put him in the room. The loneliness he had felt in the unfamiliar city was now a mounting panic as he was unable to get anyone's help in this frantic search for himself. Something was strange about time, too, in this world where rules about pe- space and speed and solid mass all seemed suspended. He had lost all sense of whether the experience was taking a split second or lasting for hours. Finally, he came upon a man in a bed with a ring on his left hand, a small gold owl on an oval of black onyx. It was his ring, and the sheet was pulled way up over his head. George had felt so alive, so himself, he had not really let it sink in that he was dead. Now it hit him in despair. He sunk down in the bed, on the bed. The light in the room started to grow brighter and brighter. I started in astonishment as the brightness increased, coming from nowhere, seeming to shine everywhere at once. It was impossibly bright. It was like a million welders' lamps all blazing at once. And right in the middle of my amazement came a prosaic thought probably born of some biology lecture back at the university. I'm glad I don't have physical eyes at this moment, I thought. The light would destroy the retina in a tenth of a second. No, I corrected myself, not the light. He. He would be too bright to look at, for now I saw that it was not light, but a man who had entered the room, or rather, a man made out of light. The instant I perceived him, a command formed itself in my mind stand up. The words came from inside me, yet they had an authority my mere thoughts had never had. I got to my feet, and as I did came the stupendous certainty, you are in the presence of the Son of God. He thought about Jesus, the Son of God, whom he had learned about in Sunday school. Gentle, meek, kind of weakling, but this person was power itself, fused together with an unconditional love that overwhelmed him an astonishing love, a love beyond my wildest imagining. This love knew every unlovable thing about me, the quarrels with my stepmother, my explosive temper, the sex thoughts I could never control, even mean, selfish thought and action since the day I was born, and accepted and loved me just the same. When I say he knew everything about me, This was simply an observable fact. For into that room, along with his radiant presence, simultaneously, though in retelling about it, I have to describe them one by one, had also entered every single episode of my entire life. Everything that had ever happened to me was simply there in full view, contemporary and current all seemingly take place taking place at that moment. How was this possible? I do not know. Finished, transfixed, I started at my stared at myself, standing at the blackboard in a third grade spelling class, receiving my Eagle badge in front of my scout troop, wheeling Papa Dabney onto the veranda at Moss Side, There were other scenes, hundreds, thousands, all illuminated by the searing light in an existence where time seemed to have ceased. It would have taken weeks of ordinary time. Every detail of 20 years of living was there to be looked at. What have you done with your life? (laughs) What have you done with your life to show me The question, like everything else, proceeded from him, had to do with love. How much have you loved with your life? Have you loved others as I am loving you? Totally, unconditionally. Why I had not lo- known love like this was possible. Someone should have told me, I thought indignantly. A fine time to discover what life was all about. I did tell you. But how, still wanting to justify myself, how could he have told me and I have not heard? I told you by my life I lived. I told you by the death I died. And if you keep your eyes on me, you will see more. George Ritchie did claim to see m- much, much more, which we will explore in the following pages. Beauty surpassing Earth's favorite vacation destinations, people alive and active in a world not unlike ours, yet so infused with such exhilarating love, purpose, and belonging that it made Earth seem merely a shadow of the real life to come, as the loving being of light sent him back after his tour of another dimension. George said, from the loneliest moment of my existence, I had leaped into the most perfect belonging I had ever known. The light of Jesus had entered my life and filled it completely, and the idea of being separated from him was more than I could bear. After being clinically dead for nine minutes, George found himself back in his earthly body, but with a sheet over his head. Dr. Francie signed a notarized statement of his death that George would later produce Whenever he talked about his experience, <laughs> several years later, George and his friends were driving back to Texas from Virginia. <laughs> George had never driven through Vicksburg, Mississippi, yet he began to recognize it. He insisted the driver follow his directions, leading them right to the red roof all night cafe with a PAPS Blue Ribbon sign in the window. George had indeed been to this very place, but somehow from another dimension of reality. In the book, Return from Tomorrow, he says, I have no idea what the next life will be like. Whatever I saw was only from the doorway, so to speak, but it was enough to convince me totally of two things from that moment on. One, That our consciousness does not cease with physical death. That it becomes, in fact, keener and more aware than ever. And two, that how we spend our time on earth, the kind of relationships we build, is vastly, infinitely more important than we can know. After this life-altering experience, George finally made it to medical school, worked for 13 years as a medical doctor, and eventually formed what we would, what would be the precursor to the Peace Corps. At age 40, George Ritchie earned his doctorate in psycho- psychiatry. Years later, Dr. Raymond Moody heard Dr. Ritchie's lecture at the University of Virginia about his experience. And so Moody began to accumulate these testimonies of near-death experiences, wrote a book called Life After Life. And many of these men have documented hundreds and hundreds, thousands of stories and testimonies of people that have had these experiences. And they've con- conveyed the, he, they convey the uh, incredible likenesses, in these stories unique but but likenesses even people of different religions they still end up meeting jesus that that is who and it's like he still pre, he presents himself and regardless of what they say or call him it's not a fat buddha sitting someplace it's not three gods it, you know it's not some weird thing it it always is this man of light. The the Muslims are experiencing in in these days visions of the man. In, they call him the man in white. He appears to them, and they begin to follow him. And I mean, they're they're hungry, they're religious in their sense in in how they live their lives. And then they they meet him when they encounter him. Uh, it is so common that people that evangelize over there, they'll just ask people, hey, have you seen the man in white? It's like, yeah, I have. One man was standing outside of, probably not safe for him to do that, standing outside of the, um, um, what do they call the Muslim, the mosque, and as people would come out, he would ask the question to the people coming out, hey, have you seen the man in white? And if they said yes, he said, go stand over there. And when the... (laughs) Place would empty, then he'd go over to them and explain to them that they had encountered Jesus. And, and their experiences are so real, they're like, well, we want to follow him. <laughs> it's like, wow. To realize the Bible, of course, tries to tell us this, but there's something about the testimony and these testimonies that gives you that nudge it feels so real. The power of testimony is huge. The Lord knows that. That when you leave your body, life becomes explosively um, real, real like a crystal clear picture and that life is foggy and hazy and like we, we're so used to our, our phones. They get such good graphics and pictures, you know, and then you look at a regular t- TV, you're like, whoa, oh, that's not, you know, and we're, we're used to that. As a matter of fact, if, if the picture's bad, we're like, oh, I don't want to watch this because once you get, you, get, you get that high definition, you're like, oh, I like this. This is great to look at. It, that's the experience they have when they, when they die, and then, but how you lived your life does matter. It's, they don't all have great experiences. And, and then they get the opportunity to come back, which is no one wants to leave that place. The realities and the things they experience, and always this love and always their life flashing before them, which is a terrorizing, tormenting thought. <laughs> you know, I don't know if it is for you, it is for me. I'm like, Oh, God, how am I going to endure that thing, you know? And yet, they tell the story, and you, when you, it moved my heart in a place where I went, but his love is going to be so real in that moment that will only take a moment that I can live through, I can endure it when the Lord's going to, when others look at our life, they don't have that love. And it feels terrible when they scrutinize over what you've done or what you've said or, you know, and bring that up like it, it's agonizing. It's a court case, you know, in which you die in the end or get imprisoned in the end or get sentenced in the end. And there, especially if it's under the blood, there's this boom, covering that his love is so overwhelming, like, really is. And the reality, getting released from this body, and you you realize, wow, death. You think of all the people that have suffered so badly, and then they die. That moment of death washes away the pain and the horrible things that they've gone through. And in the past years, if you've followed anything in the news and the reporting like the atrocities that are going on have been for a long time we're becoming awakened to them and and it can keep you awake at night it's so disturbing the abuse to children and women and all of the things the human trafficking just that subject alone realizing how real it is and how bad it is and it's right under our noses it's right here in america and and it and and, and it helps you, like, if they die, if they, if death is so amazing because the Lord's there in that realm, that it washes away, it released that. And then his, there's, the people keep giving testimonies of the sense of belonging and the love there and the joy and the playfulness and the, and the, the, the amazing experiences to be in that realm and to be in that place. And, and, and then this question, did you love? What did you do with your life that you can show me? I, when I read those words, like I stopped reading, I'm like, that immediately got to the, de- what have I done with my life that I can show the Lord? Because I could show stuff I was like, no, 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 that didn't matter, that didn't matter, that didn't matter but where i loved mattered a lot where i forgave mattered a lot where i overcame things especially spiritually and believe that mattered a, it mattered a, it was all, it was all of it and and it's for these people it's always life cha- not always but many times often it's life changing for them to have tasted and seen that it it changes how they do business it changes how they do how they, and, and then the documentation and learning and seeing how all of these people take such care in gathering real information from real, real, real people that have experienced these things and then laying it out and looking at, at the facts. It's like it's so faith-building, like, wow. And then this man keeps going to scriptures and showing a reality. that Like, it's, it's here in our Bibles. It's here. It's here in Psalms thirty-nine. How, how the Lord knows you. Like, wow. He really does. It's not something we just say at church. It's not just a good message. It's, not, it's more than a phrase. It's, it's a reality. He knows me. And when I can look and I read the rest of this chapter, when I realize I'm fearfully and wonderfully made, when I make that meditation it's giving me the strength to stop despising myself to move off of that if you can get to a place where you can accept love yourself it's a big deal this is where shame has its root we carry a, a uh, resentment towards who we are what we, what we are And how we've been made. If you can get over that. You can fully believe. The rest of what he. This is what he says. He says he loves me. He says he knows me. He designed me. He he knew me in my mother's womb. And he designed me. Regardless of how that conception happened. he, He knew me there. He loves me there. He loved me from that point. He designed me. You were designed, uniquely made. And you just had to find that place and that thing. But mostly this place of coming to, accepting, releasing, and believing who he is. Heaven is real. We don't talk about it enough. Got to get our eyes on that. There was a a quote in here for the people that get their eyes on heaven and start living towards heaven they get earth they get living on earth it's it goes to the package but for the people to keep, have their eyes on living in this earth they they miss they they lose both they don't get either one and so other ministers have talked about that. When they get their people to get their eyes on eternal things, it, it, it causes such a change. It gives you endurance. It gives you something to live for. It's that thing of setting your sights on something far away. It's how you can get a straight line. You, you look out. Not, you can't look right where you are. You've got to look beyond. You've got to look to a point that's fixed. And you start going towards that point, and it will bring you straight and true. To it, But if your eyes are always on the things around you, you miss so much. One little story. I find myself, and then I'll close, I find myself often through life, go to something, an event, something, it uh, happens when, like, in my mind anyways, when I'm at something and a distraction comes. Something like you're there, you're in this situation or you're you're doing this thing, for a specific purpose and that's why you went that's why you you went somewhere it seems often my illustration often ha- it has to do with going places and being some being at a conference doing this or that and then something goes wrong on that journey you know something always goes wrong right always does there's always something that will pull you off of the main purpose something going wrong some injustice something and I've often got my eyes on that thing, on the journey. It consumed me. It didn't matter any, in the end anyways, and I missed the point of what I was there for. I've, I've experienced that several times. I'm like, was that really you know, a noble cause? No, it was a useless distraction, and I missed what I was really there for. That's happened a bunch of times. The enemy knows how to get me You know, he knows how to bait you over here and get into that thing. When we were on this blessed trip that we went on to Colorado, this last one, uh, because of uh, when I went to the rental car, I was already thinking, boy, I'd like to upgrade and get something nicer to drive. I don't want to end up with a Kia or whatever, you know. And um, just my flesh, but it still was a desire and you know, when the salesman said, which there's always a salesman involved, you know, and, but that was, I was ready for him because I'm like, yeah, I was, yeah. He's like, hey, we have a discount on upgrades. Like, it's only, it's going to be half of what it normally is. And I'm like, yeah, I, w- I would like that. Got Jesse and Tom with us. Like, let's bump up a little bit. And uh, so we did. We jumped in one car, an SUV, and, um, and it got stopped at the, at the gate because it had a damage hold on it. And she goes, I'm sorry, you're going to have to turn around, go back to the parking lot, and have the guys give you a different car, which they were about out of cars on Friday night. And so I drive back and tell them, it's like, oh, yeah, okay, here. And, and, and this black girl that's running around in, uh, in a frenzy, and I understood why later, because they run out of cars, and cars they've promised, and so it's, yeah, how life goes there, and um, <clears throat> evidently. And she just kind of points to the guy that's helping us, like, Take that one over there, sitting in the you know in the shadows, and uh, I don't even know what the thing is. I can't see because it's not well lit. And uh, we walk over to it, and the guy taking us over and getting us the key he goes, he goes, oh, you're gonna like this car. It was an Infiniti QX80, four-wheel drive, leather, full, big, like, and oh my gosh, you yeah. So that's what we had to drive the whole time. I mean, it was. One, it was wonderful. And wow, if you stepped on the gas, it it went. It was like, even though it's big, it's like, whoo. And a couple of days in, it was after a day or two of having it, I noticed once it was warmed up, the transmission was, it was almost like was, the engine was disconnecting from the transmission. And it, I'm watching the tack go whoo, on its own, up, down, you know, and it's like. Oh boy, we're not stopping, but it's, something's weird. So, if I'd really step on the gas and kind of rehook up, you know, and take off again. So, I get concerned with this like, is this thing gonna dump out on us? Something's, something's not right. Electronically, or the transmission's, I don't know what it is. It had 54,000 miles on it, you know, it should be good to go. So, I become concerned about that, and we're gonna take Tom and Jesse back to the airport, and they're like, what's that noise? I'm like, um, <laughs> this thing kind of got a mind of its own. We're doing 70 miles an hour, and the tax going, yeah, 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 and we're kind. So, you know, it's like, pay no attention. It's fine. It's fine. You know, we just keep driving, you know. And I'm like, well, I'm going to go back to the airport, and where I picked up the car, maybe I'll stop in there. And I was thinking, I probably should stop in there and say, hey, can we get a different car? This is acting up. But I had this check about that, like, be careful, because you don't know what you're going to get, and I don't know how that's going to go. Well later, Jesse said, you know, we were standing someplace at a rental car place and a somebody came in and said this car isn't working right and they looked at him and said, We can't do anything about it. And I'm like, Oh, that would have ruined my trip if I would have, you know, said, Hey, this isn't running right. And they're, you know. So and I just don't want to get in that mode. And so it's like, oh, well, we dropped them off as head to the mountains. I'm like, let's deal with it. And more I went, I'm like, you know what? As long as it keeps running, I'm just I'm not going to I'm not going to go there. It'll be a distraction. If it goes bad, it'll be a big distraction. And as long as it's getting us where we want to go, I'm, I'm just going to stay. And I did that. It acted up a little bit, but it was fine. It was like, I think I, I felt like I passed the test. I didn't go for the distraction. And it in the end, it didn't matter. It got us every place. It was great, And it was still wonderful to drive. And life has a lot to do with, not getting hung up on the distractions on the little things the, the struggles and you become all this drama do you understand how addicted we are to drama and we talk to each other about it no 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 this happened that happened it's like and what do we accomplish nothing it's not praise it's not thanksgiving it's somebody did me wrong and you know here, can you imagine what can you believe what happened yeah it's like it's the planet man It's the planet. It's, we're here. We're here. It's war. Like, it's like having a soldier complain because a bomb blew up beside him. It's like, hey, yeah, hey, dummy. Yeah, they've got guns and they're shooting at us. That's, yeah, don't get hit. That's that's the goal here. Don't be upset that they're shooting at you. Stay down and, you know, do your job and do what you're sent to do. Life's like that. Don't get, don't get. Don't fall for the distractions. They seem like noble causes at first. Like, I should do this, and I don't deserve this, and I should fix this, and I, you know. There's always something. It's just the same story, just different features about them. And, and at the end, what would happen if you go, I'm just going to pull up from this and let the Lord take care of it. And just wait. and Maybe it's not as big a deal as I think. And just stay low and stay true and stay on track. And I was so... I was so blessed. And I turned that in and that, the next morning. It's like, how do you explain to somebody what's going on with your automobile or whatever? It's like, does it matter? We're in a hurry. And I just kind of laughed as I walked away. It's like, yeah, they'll, they'll deal with it or not, or they'll just give it to the next customer. Wouldn't have matter if I said anything or not, probably, honestly. It, it, life gets different when you get your eyes on the goal. Heaven's coming. It's real. Jesus is there. It'll be worth it. It'll be worth it. This is the glory, like it's the reality of the glory. It says in that surpassing glory, this pain and suffering will go. It'll be nothing. It's like, oh, that's nothing compared. Forget that. This is this is beautiful. This is amazing. I'm fully alive. Look at me, and I'm gonna get a lecture from. The Sunday school people, because I stuck them with their kids, our kids too long. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you for this table and we ask that you will just blow it up for us as we honor your table, as we honor and dive deeply into communion and all the benefits and what it really is, Father. I expect you visit us in this realm. And Father, Thank you for heaven. Thank you for these testimonies of how real it is. Thank you for the word that you've given us. You've told us all this. And we mostly thank you for the life you lived and the instructions you give to teach us to love. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.
1: I just feel impressed just to take take one more moment before we before we enter into this. Um, there's just a cleansing that he wants to bring in. There's a cleansing when we were out there they talked about our robes and how they had to be they had to be washed and it was it was so good and I, I don't want to try to to, to re redo anything that was done, but I just feel it's appropriate this morning for us just to ask for our robes and our hands to be washed. So Father, we ask for this cleansing. Before we step in, we ask for a cleansing to take place in each one of us this morning. Father, prepare our hearts for the lamb on the throne. Prepare us as we enter in. Father, we thank you for this moment, this beauty that you've unveiled for us here after this this long-awaited wedding. How appropriate for this timing that we we get to see what's to come. We get to see the wedding, and then we get, to, we get to enter into covenant with you. Thank you for setting it up that way, Father. Thank you. I just believe he wants he wants closeness this morning. So everybody, if you could just take take another step or two closer. Uh, so Phyllis is going to give us the uh, the Jewish blessing.
0: Blessed art thou a Lord our God king of the universe who brought
1: forth the wheat from the earth and Jesus was with his disciples and he took the bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he said this is my body take And then he took the cup, and he said, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant, the blood that was poured out for all. And he said, take and drink.